So welcome back to week two of our series, How to Survive the End of the World. Kind of a dark title, kind of a, a scary series, scary to think about the end of the world. But there are a lot of people thinking about the end of the world today. There are a lot of people talking about the end of the world today. And today, by, I, mean, I mean today, because... 12-21-2012, just a few weeks into our future, is the date that the Mayan calendar ends. Ah! Right? There's a whole lot of people, they made a movie about it like three years ago. And there's been like a, a 36-month countdown to what some people truly believe is going to be the end of the world four days before Christmas this year. They've been making TV shows for a couple of years now on the Discovery Channel, Doomsday Preppers, and they're building like concrete bunkers and storing food and water and guns and ammo and buying gold for what's going to happen in three weeks from now. Last week, we talked about that. Last week, we opened the series talking about what has to happen before the end of the world. What has to happen before Jesus comes back to the earth. And one of the things that we discovered as we talked about all of that last week, and I hope if you didn't remember anything else about that talk, you remember this thing. Jesus said about the date and the time that the world will end, nobody knows. Nobody knows. He said not any person, not the angels in heaven, and not even God the Son, but only God the Father knows the time and the date for the end. So whoever is out there, whether they're a pastor, a preacher, a rabbi, a Mayan, or, or any other kind of person, cult leader, religious leader, whoever, whatever, if they put a date and a time on it, they're wrong. <laughs> they're wrong. Don't get all wound up in that. If you got nothing else out of last week, I hope you got that. If you get nothing else out of this week, let that one stick, okay? So last week we talked about what has to happen before that date arrives. Because Jesus was very clear, some things had to occur. Many of them have occurred, some of them are occurring. And we discovered last week that the world is riper today, is that a word, riper? More ripe today than it has ever been before. And by the way, tomorrow it will be more ripe than it was today. That's all we know. Every day we draw nearer. Bottom line, be prepared. Be prepared. And prepare as many people as possible in your sphere of influence for the day when Jesus will return. Be prepared. Today we're going to talk a little bit about why that preparation is so important. Today we're going to talk about judgment. Because judgment is a part of the end. It's a part of the end of your life. It's a part of the end of the world. The Bible says that every one of us will stand before a holy God and be judged. And on that day, when judgment takes place, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, as Jim read the scriptures earlier, that Jesus is Lord. But on that day, some will be too late with their confession, and their judgment will not be what they thought it would be. See, I think a lot of us have a wrong impression of what judgment is all about. Some of us got our impression of judgment from watching like Tom and Jerry cartoons right? I mean, they die like three times in an episode. 
And sometimes they show the, the, the scene of Tom and Jerry approaching the pearly gates and there's a, a, a St. Saint, a Saint Peter and, and he's there and he says, oh, well, you're in or you're out and you get to ride an elevator either up or down, right? That's, that's not what judgment is going to look like. The Bible says there are actually two judgments that we need to be concerned with, two judgments that we're going to talk about today. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time putting a bunch of fluff and filler in today. We can't dance around on these topics. we got to get going. So if you're ready to take some notes, there's a fill-in-the-blank outline in front of you. I'm going to do like I did last week. I'm going to accelerate from this point forward. We're going to get down and dirty and get busy. And we're going to talk about what's going to happen on Judgment Day. If you would open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 10 through 15. That's the first passage of Scripture we're going to come to. And that passage of Scripture addresses the first judgment I want to talk about, which is called the judgment seat of Christ. The judgment seat of Christ is the judgment for believers, for Christians, for followers of Christ. Whatever label or nomenclature you want to put on that, that is who this judgment is for. The judgment seat of Christ. 1 Corinthians 3, 10 to 15 is one of many passages that addresses this judgment. And let's see what, now this is Paul writing. Paul's writing to the church in Corinth, and he's explaining to them what that is going to look like, but he's also explaining it to us. This was something that is as relevant today as it was 2,000 years ago when Paul wrote this. So let's see what Paul says about this judgment. He says, By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder, and someone else is building on it. Each one should build with care. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold or silver or costly stones, using wood or hay or straw, their work will be shown for what it is. Because the day, notice the capital D there, in fact, underline that in your Bible if you have it open, capital D, because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. Press the pause button, please. Paul is saying that each one of us is a builder, and the foundation upon which we build our life is Christ. Again, he's talking to Christians talking about a judgment for Christians. So Christians, your foundation, followers of Jesus, your foundation is Jesus. The life you build, you build upon Jesus. You have building materials that you can build with. Paul describes six building materials that people of this time would have been very familiar with. They built buildings out of these things. Gold, silver, and costly stones. Those were part of a lot of buildings. Now, they were the, obviously, high-end buildings, right? The temple would have had gold and silver and costly stones. Palaces would have had these things. But these were building materials that would have been used. Also, wood, hay, and straw. Wood, hay, and straw were common building materials in this time. And whatever we're building on the foundation of Christ, whatever our life looks like, whatever structure we build, Paul says it's going to be tested on the day of judgment. And the way that it will be tested is with fire. If you look right down there in verse 13, fire appears twice. You can underline fire too. Now, out of those six building materials, three of those materials are refined and purified by fire. 
three of those materials are consumed and burnt up and destroyed by fire. I don't think I have to explain that gold, silver, and costly stones are the ones that are purified. Hay and straw and wood are burned up. Most of you have burned a fire before. You know what that does. What are you building? With what are you building? Will your life pass through the flames and be purified and refined and made more valuable? Or will it be shown to have been not worthy, unable to withstand the test? Will it be consumed and burnt up? Paul goes on. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved, even though only as one escaping through the flames. A couple of things going on here that are definitely important for us to point out. Number one, contrary to popular belief and maybe even some uh, uh, church teachings, we will not have the same experience in heaven. Not every person will have the exact identical same experience in heaven. There will be rewards in heaven that some will receive and some will not. Paul says it right here. If, the, if the, what you, you've built uh, survives, you'll receive a reward. If it's burned up, you will suffer a loss. So if you build a life that survives, that passes the judgment, then there's a reward for that. And if it doesn't, you don't get that reward. But Paul's very clear right after that, that you will still be saved. Again, contrary to some church teachings, some theological opinions, you cannot lose your salvation. There's some who would argue that with me, and that's okay. I respect their right to be wrong. But it's clear right here. You cannot lose your salvation. You can lose you can lose your reward, but you can't lose your salvation. So if you're a Christian, a person who has placed their faith in Jesus, that he is God's son, that he does save you from your sins, that he does give you a blessed life now and eternally with him and his Father in heaven, you can't lose your salvation. You can lose your rewards. You can forego them by building a life that is not worthy, that is not uh, uh, able to stand the flames, the fire that is the judgment of Christ. Interesting stuff. We're all going to be judged. Christians are going to be judged. And some Christians will be judged to have not built a life that's worthy of the reward. Some will. We will not have the same experience in heaven, and yet we will all be saved, even as though it says, <laughs> as one escaping through the flames. I don't know if you've ever escaped through flames. I haven't, but it doesn't sound like a fun experience for me. So, the judgment seat of Christ starts off like that. People are judged. Christians are judged, but not condemned. Jesus took the condemnation for you and for me when he died on the cross. He freed us from that condemnation when he rose again. We don't have to suffer the condemnation, but we will absolutely go through the judgment. And we're accountable, obviously, for some things. We're accountable for our life. 
how we lived it, the choices that we make. We will uh, face accountability for that. So let's talk about this accountability for a moment. Let's talk about accountability. If we're going to be held accountable, I would like to know what I'm going to be held accountable for. Wouldn't you? Like if you're going to build a life, wouldn't you like to know what kind of life will pass through those flames of judgment and, and give you the reward? I do. There's two things I want to po point out today that are critical areas of, count of accountability that God is going to judge us on. The first one is motives. I'm accountable for my motives. You are accountable for your motives. Check out what Paul says in verse 10. He says, By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder. Someone else is building on it. But each one should build with care. Each one should build with care. Hmm. In some translations that says, should be careful how he lives. Talking about building a life with care, being careful how we live. I think our motives are really what Paul's talking about here. I think our motives are important in uh, uh, how we live. And it's something that we're going to be accountable for. The Bible says that God knows our hearts. He knows our very thoughts. He knows our motives. He doesn't just look at the product that we put out. He knows the motives behind that product, why we do what we do, why we think and say what we think and say. And he's going to judge us not just for what we did, but for why we did it, for the motives of our hearts. See, Christianity is not just about praying a prayer and saying that you're a, a follower of Christ, saying that you're a Christian. It's not about, God, forgive me, please. I am a sinner. Amen. I can do whatever I want to with my life now. God knows the motives of your heart. If you pray that prayer and it's like you think you're getting a get-out-of-hell-free card so you can live like a heathen for the rest of your life and still get in, God knows the motives of your heart. He knows what's going on in your thought process. Christianity is not about a get-out-of-hell-free card. Christianity is about following Jesus. He lived 33 years. He gave us a three-year documented ministry. We know a lot about what he did. We know a ton about what he taught, what he demonstrated. He, it's all right here. And Christian literally means little Christ, like chip off the old block, right? We should be like a chip off of the old block if the old block is Jesus. We should try to emulate him in everything we do, imitate him in everything that we do, in the way that we think, the way that we feel, the way that we speak, the way that we act. God knows the motives of our hearts. If we say we're a Christian to get a get-out-of-hell-free card, he knows. If, he, if we are a follower of Jesus, he knows. And there is a big difference between those two things. Here's a couple of questions I think we can ask ourselves so we can self-evaluate and check our own motives. There's five of these questions. The first question is, why are you here? And I mean literally here, right now, this morning, in church. Why are you here as Elevation Church 
this morning. Some people come to church so they can get their God points for the week. Because somehow in their uh, uh, you know, understanding of God, it's like a game show, and if I achieve so many points, I win. I'm good with God for the week. And so they got to do so many good deeds. they got to read so many minutes. They've got to pray so many times. Uh, they need to be at church and do these things. And it's like a checklist, a punch list of things they've got to do. It's a requirement to be here. And so there are people who come to church for no other reason than to maybe get their God points. Some use the church as a social club. It's a place to network, to see and be seen, to meet members of the opposite sex, to fulfill your relational uh, desires and needs, just to hang out with friends. Some people come to church just for that. Some have an idea of like this good-bad ledger in their minds. You know, I did X, Y, and Z this week. I was bad, bad, and worse. And so now I've got to do A, B, and C. I've got to be good, good, and better to equate. And if I can get one more good mark on that side of the ledger, then I got bad marks on that side of the ledger, then maybe I'll be good enough to get in when my life is over. And so they have that good, bad ledger thing working. Why are you here this morning? Are you here because it's what you do? Are you here because it's what you've always done? Because you were like born in the church, as far as you know? You can't ever remember a time when the doors were open that you weren't there? Are you religious? Christianity is not a religion. Christianity is relationship. A lot of people are religious. They go to church because that's what church people do, and they are church people. Are you a church person just here because you're not really sure what else you would do on a Sunday morning? That's the only real reason you can come up with? Or are you here to seek God, to meet Him, to hear from Him. Are you here to worship this morning? To worship the God who created you, who breathed life into you, who had a plan for you before He ever put you here, whose plan for you is being worked out in spite of your best efforts to undo it? Are you here to worship that God, the God who loves you so much that he sent his son to pay the penalty for all the sin, the wrongdoing of your life? Are you here to worship God? I can't answer these questions. You can, and I ask you to do that. Question number two, do I obey Jesus or do I negotiate with him? Do I obey or do I negotiate? Many times throughout my life, I've sat in a worship service while the music is going, while the preacher is preaching, while somebody's praying. It doesn't really, it's, I never know when it's going to happen, but sometimes it does. It just hits me. And the Lord is speaking to me, not audibly, not in a weird way, but just literally, I know that God is speaking into my spirit. Maybe he's telling me to do this or do that. Give this amount. Stand up and raise your hands in worship. I don't care if nobody else in the room is doing it. Maybe he's, he's just leading me to surrender to him, to give up whatever thing it is, whatever fear, whatever hurt, whatever I'm holding on to in that moment. And I have an option. At that time, I can obey Jesus or I can negotiate 
I've negotiated a lot. Lord, I don't care if you don't care that nobody else is standing up and raising their hands in worship. I care. And nobody else is doing it. So instead of doing that, I'm going to sing a little louder. In fact, what I'll do this week, God, I will tune my radio off of Sports Radio 1310, the ticket. It's dark stuff anyway. Bad Satan. Ooh, yeah, devil bad. Ooh. And I will tune in 94.9 KLTY Christian music all week long. I'll do that for you, God, if you don't make me stand up. Like we can negotiate with God. God says, give this amount. Well, that's a pretty hefty sum, God. I'm not sure I can handle that. How about instead of giving that amount, if I volunteer an extra hour every month? I'll go feed the homeless. I'll work in, you know what, I'll I'll work in the nursery. I'll change diapers if you just don't make me give that much. Do you negotiate with God? I was famous for the one that has been, I mean, like, I think they've written songs about this one. Saturday night, college, been out a little too late, doing a little too much. Like, I just ate a lot of food at Thanksgiving. That was excess. It wasn't food, right? Back in the day in college, it was something else. It was liquid. And I would be around the toilet bowl negotiating with God. If you just don't let me die tonight, I will never do this again. And sometimes it was really bad. It's like, if you will just let me die tonight. Some of you have negotiated with God before. God's not into negotiation. Which leads us into verse, or the question number three. Do you see God's word as a command or a suggestion? Now, moving out of the things where God is communicating with you, like in a way that you might try to, you know, uh, uh, maybe that wasn't from God. Maybe I ate bad pizza. Or, or maybe that was guilt and that wasn't from God. Okay, now we're into God's word. This is plain, clear, black and white, direct. Do you see God's word, the Bible, as commands? as rules for living, as what to do and how to do it, or suggestions. Because God's very clear about how we should handle our lives. He's clear about things like sex. Sex is for one man and one woman in the context of marriage. That's unpopular. That's not politically correct. I think I covered political correctness last week. I'm not into political correctness. I'm into telling the truth about what God says. God's Word says... That's where sex, I mean, look, God created sex. He gave it to us as a gift. Do you think he didn't write instructions for how to use what he gave us? He he gave us very clear instructions. It's not for outside of sex. The Bible says that you should not lay with your men as you lay with your women. That's a pretty clear statement about homosexuality. It says you shouldn't lay with your animals. That's just gross. But God was clear about these things, and we try to negotiate with Him. We try to take it as a suggestion instead of a command. Just let me apply a little bit of my own logic, a little bit of my own feeling, my own emotional rationalization to what you have to say, God. talks about money, too. Some people don't believe the tithe is, is biblical, or at least not New Testament biblical. Some people believe that it is like rock solid, uh, carved in stone commandment. I tend to believe that it's, it's something God says we should do. That's just my belief. I don't want to put my belief on you. You believe what you want to believe about what God says here. 
You can believe what you want to believe. I respect your right to your opinion, and that's not even a right to be wrong because there's some, some room to negotiate on that one. Some, not negotiate, but room to, to argue. But here's the deal. Regardless of where you are on the tithe, God knows your motivations about money. He knows your motivations about sex. He knows your motivations for negotiating with Him. He knows your motivations. And you're going to be judged for those motives. What's your motive with money? If you're not tithing, tithe just means giving 10% of your income to God. What's your motive for not tithing? Is it so you can hold on to more? So you can live a lifestyle that you want to live? Because whatever your, your um, take, your interpretation of what the scriptures say about the tithe and about money, whatever that is, it dictates an awful lot about how you live your life, right? How you deal with, with God's directives, God's word, and how it talks about money, it impacts how you live, where you live, what you drive, the clothes you wear, the food you eat, the colleges your kids go to. It'll even dictate, in a very large way, uh, how you retire and even what your funeral looks like, what you're buried in. For real. Your take on His Word and what it says about money plays into all of those things. What are your motives if you are a tither? If you do tithe or even give above the tithe? Some people don't believe in the tithe. They believe... Old Testament tithe, great. I'm giving 18, 20, 25% of my income because I can. Fantastic. What's your motive? Are you tithing? Are you giving because you think you're going to get? Are you tithing? Are you giving out of religious, just this is what you do? Are you doing it because you love the Lord? See, God wants your heart. He doesn't want your money. He doesn't need it. If he needed it, he would have never given it to you in the first place. God wants your heart, not your money. You see his word as a command or a suggestion. Question four, are you living in sin with no desire to change or to get out? Are you living in sin with no desire to change, to leave that sin behind? See, that's a dangerous one. Every one of us, before we enter into a relationship with Christ, we develop our own ways for dealing with life. Life throws a lot of curveballs at you, throws some fastballs at you. Sometimes you get the chin music, right? You get that fastball that's a little high and inside, and, and, and you got to figure out how to deal with the difficulties of life. In the New Testament, they talk about that. They, they, it's called the flesh. The flesh. It's two words for flesh. One means like muscle and sinew and bone and stuff, right? And the other one is talking about your responses to life, the way that you lived before Christ. When you become a Christian, God does not wipe out all of that stuff. It's not like one fell swoop, sliced, and it's gone. You carry that into your walk with Christ, and the walk with Christ is, is this whole idea of being changed from the inside out. As Jesus resides in your heart, as the Holy Spirit takes up residence, He begins to convict your sin. All those wrong responses have how you dealt with life before Christ. And the rest of your life, the rest of your walk with Jesus, all that time that you're building, he's correcting your building materials. He's correcting the blueprint. He's helping you build that Christ-like 
life. But if you have sin and you don't want to leave that sin behind, that pet sin, if the conviction of the Spirit comes on you and you reject that conviction and you want to keep your pet sin, you want to feed your pet sin, you want to stroke and love your pet sin and carry your pet sin with you through the rest of your life, realize that you're carrying that with you right into the fire of judgment and that pet sin is not going to come out on the other side. And you're giving things up in heaven, which is eternal, so that you can have that pet sin on this earth, and that life is temporary. You're giving up the best things for something that's not even good, but maybe feels good. Are you living in sin without a desire to change or get out? Question number five. Am I giving God my best? Notice I didn't say, are you living a perfect life? I said, are you giving God your best? I made a terrible academic mistake my, at the end of my freshman year of high school. Panned out pretty good in the end, but at the time, or a year later, it really looked like a mistake. I signed up for AP chemistry, college-level chemistry, as a sophomore in high school. The reason I did it is because the teacher for that class was my freshman biology teacher. And I will confess, she was easy to look at. All right? I'll get that one out on the table right now. She was easy to look at. But it was more than that. This was one of those teachers that had a way, and I bet every one of you has had one along the way of your education. She had a way of getting the very best out of you. You wanted to perform. You wanted to do well. I don't know what it was. And I wasn't the only one. There were a lot of us. Some of them were girls, so really it wasn't that other thing. It was, she just had a way of getting, and I wanted to do well. I made a C in that class. I learned to study in that class. That's how it panned out pretty good for me. I barely pulled a C. Did you know that a C is average? I almost missed average on the low end. I failed a couple, I, th I think I failed one six weeks of that class. But I gave my best. Average was all I could do. I wasn't perfect. There were kids in there that were making like hundreds and 98s. I wasn't one of them. But I gave my best. See, God's not looking for your perfection. And God should be the one more than any teacher, more than any parent, more than any other person, any relationship you have in your life that you want so badly to please, to do well for, to give your best to. Are you giving your best to God? Are you holding out? Because you're afraid of failure or even afraid of success? God wants your best. We're going to be held accountable for our motives. The second area of accountability that we're going to find at the judgment seat of Christ, we're going to be accountable for our stewardship. I'm accountable for my stewardship. You are accountable for your stewardship. We're going to be accountable for stewarding several things. We're going to talk about three today. These are big, overarching, big picture things. Stewardship of your time. Stewardship of your time. 
Time is the most precious commodity that you and I have. It is literally our life. Your life is measured in time. Time is your life. Say, people say time is money. Pfft, money's worthless. I can get more of that. Time I can't get more of. I don't know how much time I have. I know how much money I've got. I know how I can go earn more. I know how much I can go earn. I don't know time. When will my time run out? When will yours run out? I don't know. We tell ourselves a big fat lie in this life. We say, I don't have time. I didn't have time to do this. I didn't have time to do that. Wish I could do that. I don't have time. It's a lie. Don't buy the lie. Don't deceive yourself and tell yourself that lie. You have the same amount of time as I do. I have the same amount as you do. We all have the same amount of time in a day, 24 hours, in a week, 168. Check my math. You will do the things with your time that are the most important things to you. Ouch. That hurts. Because I know the things that I do with my time. I know that I watch TV a lot more than I want to let myself believe. I know how much time I waste. Actually, I don't know. You want to find out? Keep a time log, an activity log, just for one week. Look back on the amount of time that you spent doing this or doing that that was not really one of the things that you know is a priority in your life. See, when I watch TV, when I disappear back into my bedroom and turn the TV on and close the bedroom door, I'm peeling away from my wife, who is my number one earthly relationship. Highest priority I have on earth is my relationship with my wife. Pulling away from my children, who are a second, a very, very close second. When I invest my time reading a, a, a book, is it a book that, that builds me? Is it a book that feeds me the Word of God? Is it a book that makes me a better person, helps me be a better dad, a better husband, a better pastor, a better leader? Does it help me do my business? Or is it just a book for, you know, a book's sake? Which, by the way, recreation is important. It should be in your priorities. Recreation is a critical, important part of your life. How much time are you spending in recreation that you could be spending on something more important, higher priority? See? prioritizing your life, stewarding your time. What are you doing with your time? Your time is given to you by God's grace. Paul said, by the grace, of, by the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation. By the grace God has given me, by the time God has given me. And the clock's ticking. I don't know how much time I've got. Jesus said the most important things we should do with our time, most important thing we should do with our life is love God and love others. Love God and love others. That's the greatest commandment summarized. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Two most important things we can do with our lives, with our time. Love God and love others. Are you loving God with your time? Are you loving others? Are you investing in the things of God? Honor God with your time. Honor God with your time by loving Him and loving others. Money. Talked about money a couple times already today. Some of you are really getting nervous about money. I hate it when the pastor talks about money. I get twitchy when the pastor talks about money. I talk about money because the Bible talks about money. 
I talk about money because Jesus talked about money. Jesus spent more time talking about money than he did about heaven and hell. If I don't talk about money, I'm going to be accountable on Judgment Day for not talking about money. So, touchy subject or not, here we go. Money. Are you stewarding your money for the things of God? We talked a few minutes ago about these questions we ask ourselves. God's commands about money. Tithe or don't tithe. Give or don't give. He knows your motives. Are you giving back to God what God has so willingly given to you? I mean, He's given us all financial blessings, monetary blessings, physical blessings, material blessings. We all have stuff. If you woke up in a, in a home this morning with a roof over your head, if you went to a closet and had a set of clothes hanging there, a pair of shoes. If you went to a refrigerator and there was food in it, heck, let's forget the food if you even have the refrigerator. By global standards, we're stinking wealthy. Wealthy. We've got material blessings. What do you do with them? Do you give back to God a portion of what He gives to you? Do you give to others? See, here's the thing that a lot of us don't realize. We're not blessed for our own comfort. We're blessed to comfort others, blessed to be a blessing. You and I are blessed to be a blessing to others. Again, God is not against money. Money is not bad. God uses money in the Bible uh, in positive ways. He, in fact, He promised the Israelites a land flowing with milk and honey. That is wealth. <coughs> money in and of itself is not a bad thing. What do you do with your money? Do you have money and things? Or does do money and things have you? We're blessed to be a blessing. Third thing that we need to steward. We got time, we got money, we've got gifts. You've got to steward God's gifts. He has gifted every follower of Christ, every Christian. 1 Corinthians 12 says, every Christian has at least one spiritual gift. Some of you know what your spiritual gifts are. Some of you don't. If you know what your spiritual gifts are, what are you doing with them? How are you stewarding those gifts? Again, are you using your spiritual gifts to build the church? Are you using them to, to build others? Are you using them at all? Use it or lose it is a, is a appropriate adage here. If you don't use those gifts, they become rusty and dull and, and they rot away and, and you've not stewarded what God gave you in a very effective manner. If you don't know what your spiritual gifts are, you may wonder how to learn, how to find them, how to discover those gifts. I don't know that there's a, a set program for that. I mean, obviously, pray. Ask God. Earnestly seek Him. But I'll tell you what worked for me and what I've seen work in a lot of other people's lives. When Trina and I, early in our marriage, joined a church, joined a big church, thousands of people going to this church. Got a lot bigger later, but big church at the time. I loved it because I could hide. I didn't know anything about the Bible. I was kind of a, you know, I was a new Christian and just kind of not really very well versed, very well educated in the Bible. And the day that we joined the church was a Sunday morning. That Sunday afternoon, I got a call from a guy that was like 50 years my senior. And he was on the other end of the phone. He says, 
Todd, you joined the church today, and we're very excited to have you, and I just want you to know there's a place for you here. And I'm like, yes, there is. I'm glad to hear that. He says, and the first place for you is in our parking ministry. I said, what do you mean? And he started to ask me to come and serve in the parking ministry, which is putting on the orange vest and waving like this, right? But I didn't know that at the time, and so I told him no, like three times because I didn't know enough about the Bible. And I was about to tell him no because I don't know anything about the Bible when it occurred to me that, wait a minute, the parking ministry is this. And when I tell him I don't know anything about the Bible, I'm going to sound really stupid. So I didn't say that. But I said no three times. He never heard me. Two weeks later, I showed up for my first time in the orange vest. And I started helping park cars in our new visitor's parking lot. I was practically a new visitor myself. I served alongside some guys who began to invest in me, not in any kind of organized Bible study or whatever, doing what guys do. Horsing around, joking around, talking, they began to invest in me. While I was serving in that ministry, Trina, my wife, drugged me, kicking and screaming, to a small group Bible study that met in a home. We called them home teams. She drugged me to this home team. I didn't want to go. Again, I didn't know anything about the Bible. I was used to being the smartest guy in the group of people I ran around with. Now, that's not saying a lot about my friends, okay? Just understand that, or myself for that matter. But I was used to being the smartest one. And I knew if I went into that small group Bible study, I wouldn't be, but she drugged me in there. And you know what? We liked it. We connected with some people. We made friends. And I began to grow. God began to use that, and he, he just poured into me. And about a year and a half, two years into that, the leaders of that group moved away. And nobody else took up the leadership role. And even though we knew we were not qualified, Trina and I are not one to leave a void in leadership. We just can't help it. It's like wired into us. So we stepped up into the leadership role very reluctantly. We waited till the very last week. Like they disbanded the group. And then on Monday, we called the pastor and said, look, if nobody else calls you this week, we'll do it. But if anybody is out there, we'll be their number one followers. But we don't, I mean, we don't want the group to end. We'll, you know what? We ended up leading that group. And about two years into leading that group, God called us to go to a training to be leaders over lots of groups because that group had become lots of groups, not because of anything brilliant that Todd and Trina did. Look, I was on my knees crying 15 minutes before I led the first lesson because I knew I was not qualified, ill-equipped, unprepared. But in that small group Bible study, I discovered God's gift for me, the ability to preach, teach, to speak publicly, no fear of public speaking. It's the number one fear in the world. Most people are scared to death to do what I'm doing. This is as natural to me as anything, and the bigger the group, the better I like it. Not because I'm some big, bad, bold guy. It's just the way God built me. Been like this as long as I can remember. Had no idea what it, that it was a gift. Didn't understand that it was to be used for God. I just did drama, like from preschool on. I was on the stage all the time and loved it. Had no idea until I got involved in that small group Bible study. Would have never gotten involved in the small group Bible study if it wasn't for the confidence that I'd gained in my interactions with those guys in the parking ministry. You want to discover what your gifts are? Get involved. Get involved in what God is doing. Get involved in the local church. Get plugged in. You may not get started in the thing that really is your giftedness. Parking ministry was not really my giftedness. It didn't take a lot of giftedness to do the parking ministry. No insult to the parking ministry absolutely necessary, wonderful, 
They're worship leaders way out there in the parking lot, way out there on the street corners. They're leading worship, preparing you and me to worship when we come in. Critical. Get involved. Discover your gift. Do something and see if God doesn't reveal to you what he has designed you to do. Steward your gifts. Use them. Don't lose them. You know why? Because you're going to be judged for how you do or how you don't use those gifts. The next judgment is the judgment seat of Christ. This is a judgment. I'm sorry, it's the great white throne judgment. I just did the judgment seat of Christ. I hate it when I do that. The second judgment is the great white throne judgment. This is a judgment for unbelievers, non-believers, people who don't follow Christ, who have not given Him control of their lives. This is uh, explained in Revelation 20, verses 11 to 15. This judgment of the dead, or great white throne judgment, is the judgment for unbelievers. And here is what it says in Revelation. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead. This is the physically dead and the spiritually dead. Not just physical, but also the spiritual, those who are without Christ. I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And books, circle the S or underline it in your Bible, plural, books were opened. Another book, singular, was opened which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books, plural. The sea gave up the dead that were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. Each person was judged according to what they had done, what they had built, if you will. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. One half of 1% of Americans believe that they are going to hell. Now that's after you get past all of the, the bravado and the, hey man, yeah, I'm going to hell. I'm going to have a party down there, me and all my friends. Woo! When you get down to the reality and ask people privately, shh, what do you think? Where are you headed? One half of 1% think they're going to hell. The problem with that thinking, if you look back at this verse, back at this passage, books, plural, book of life, singular, books, plural, book, singular. There are many, 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 many books with the names of those who are without Jesus. There is one book containing the names of those who walk with Christ. We have a perception problem. We are perceiving things differently than reality. Jesus himself said in Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, that hell will be more populous than heaven. Hell will have a higher population than heaven. Quickly, here's why. Number one, because people are procrastinators. Procrastinators. Some of you are procrastinators of the highest order. You remember your school days. 
You're doing it in your work days. You have a deadline. You don't start until the day of the deadline, whatever the project is. And you're scrambling, cramming, pressing, praying that you can finish. You've procrastinated. You don't lack the information. You knew what the project was. You knew what the deadline was. You simply waited. And sometimes you wait too long. And it's too late to do what you've got to do. We talked a moment ago about stewarding our time. I don't know how many beats are in this heart. You don't know how many are in yours either. I don't know how many days I get on this earth. You don't know how many you get either. Procrastination is a deadly game. People die and go to hell every day who know about Jesus but have never made a decision to follow him and they do not know him in a personal way. They're too late. Too late. Todd, you're trying to scare me. Yep, I am this week. If you're a procrastinator, I'm trying to help you understand you can wait too late. You have the information. What will you do with it? The second reason that hell will be more populated than heaven is because cowards, people are cowards. Cowards are scared of lots of things, scared of what others might think. Heard a story about a man out on the beach doing just ministry, street preaching, sharing the gospel. He, had, he, was, he was a student pastor, had his student group with him. There were three really attractive girls in the group, and so they attracted a big group of guys. Shocker. He's preaching to these guys, and there was one guy that he was really getting, I mean, they were like connecting. And he started having a one-on-one conversation with this guy. His buddies had filtered off back to the beach. They're talking, they're talking. He's just about to give his life to Christ when one of his buddies comes back and goes, dude, come on, man, what you doing? And the guy says, hold on, man, I'm, I'm, I'm about to pray to become a Christian. And his buddy goes, and walks off. And the guy who's just about to bow his head to Christ says, you know what, man? I, I can't do this. And he turns around and walks away. That's a heartbreaker. It's a guy who was, who was a coward. He was just afraid of what his friends might say or would think about him. Couldn't give up his cool image. Speaking of give up, that's what a lot of people are scared of. Scared of what they're going to have to give up. Pet sins, control, all these things. Some are scared of what they're going to have to take up. Like, do I need to go to church and like do, sing Christian songs and like mission trips and stuff like that if I become a Christian? Scared of what you're going to have to take up. Scared of what you're going to have to give up. Cowards. People are prideful. Number three, prideful. Proud people. Proud people need to understand you need Jesus just like everybody else does. Jesus is not a crutch for the weak. Well, he really is. But that's another topic for another day because we're all weak. And his strength is made perfect in our weakness. 
But some of you are so proud. Some people in our world are so proud. We can't realize that Jesus gives us what we can't give ourselves. He does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And we're too proud to submit to him. The fourth reason hell will be more populated is because there's a lot of church members in our world. A lot of religious people. Talked about this a little while ago, briefly. Some people think that they belong to the right denomination and that automatically gets them in. I'm a Baptist. I'm a Southern Baptist. I'm a Methodist, Catholic, Presbyterian, Church of Christ, non-denominational. That's not a free pass. You don't get in because you belong to the right denomination. I've read it. It's not in there. In fact, denominations are not even biblical. How about that? Not even biblical. You can't be the right denomination. It doesn't exist. In fact, whatever denomination you are probably has something wrong with it, even if you're non-denominational like we are. There's something wrong with that. I'm not sure what it is. It's just there because it's made by people and people are fallible. We mess up. Only God's perfect. You can't be the right denomination. I don't care if you were born in the church. Attended every time the doors were open. Cut your teeth on the back of the pew. Know the hymnals by page number, by song number. Can recite all 66 books of the Bible. Memorize the whole thing. Read it cover to cover seven times. Great. Do you know Jesus? Well, I've known Jesus all my life. I've been a, I was born a Christian. Really? Tell me how that happened. Because the Bible says you're born into sin. You're born into the curse that Adam and Eve gave us when they ate the fruit. Now, if you're born into sin, you can't be born into Christ, can you? See, we're not born into God's family. We're adopted, the Bible says, into the family of God. You get adopted into the family of God when you enter into a relationship with His Son, Jesus, the Christ, who came for the forgiveness of our sins. You can't be a, a, a Christian that was born into, into Christianity. You're, you're born into sin. You're adopted into the family of God. Matthew chapter 7, starting with verse 21. Some heavy words that Jesus said one day. He said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name drive out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. What matters on Judgment Day is this. You sit before a righteous God, a holy God, and the simple question, what did you do with the gift of my Son, Jesus. What did you do with Jesus? Did you follow him? Or did you reject him? 
you have the information. You have the opportunity and the ability to do something with it. Will you follow Christ? Or will you reject Him? Your judgment depends on your decision. Your life depends on your decision. Your eternity depends on your decision.